Hello and welcome to the Brentas Foundation podcast, where we throw light on some of the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice, not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngoklo, and it's a pleasure to share in this moment with you. Hello, it's good to be back on this platform. It has been a long while because things have been incredibly busy on this side. Happy to share more about that later on. Today, I'm excited to bring back somebody who has actually been on this podcast channel before. His journey here today and the conversation is a testament to the power of growth and iteration and above all, doing the hard stuff. In this episode, Co-founder of Satana Capital, Prince Nwadei, chats with us about the work that they are doing, what they are learning, and where opportunities exist for you to tap in. I'm super psyched to share this conversation because I'm always for people applying innovation to solve everyday hard problems. Satana Capital was a working capital finance fund that is backed by the Allen Gray Limited Empowerment Arm E-Squared. With a vision to ensure SMEs are empowered, supported, and nurtured to reflect the South Africa that they want and contribute positively to the country's national development, they currently deploy working capital into the informal sector through an embedded finance approach and have delivered, wait for this, 99.5% repayment rate. This is remarkable for a sector often deemed as super scary and risky as well. A little bit about MSMEs. So across the world, micro, small and medium enterprises are really the backbone of economies. They account for some 80 to 90% of businesses, um, employ about 70% of people, um, and are believed to contribute up to about 50% of GDP. Um, In many economies in Africa, MSMEs are the bread and butter of economic activity. I can say so, especially for a country like Ghana and many others in West Africa. In South Africa, not so much. Even then, there's about 100 million MSMEs across Sub-Saharan Africa and about 5.7 million of them in South Africa, which is a big player on the continent. SMEs over here are believed to employ some 50%, if not more, of the country's labor force and contribute up to 34% to its GDP. So they play a huge role in the economy, if we can put it that way. So without further ado, let's get into this chat with Prince, who's going to talk to us about the work that they are doing with MSMEs and in the informal sector. Okay, so Prince, welcome back to the Brentus Foundation. Um, I, I realize I actually don't say that a lot because I don't think I have people that like repeat people on here. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. It's such a yeah. pleasure. Um, of course. Great. Yeah, doing great. No complaints. All is well. Super excited. Yes. Yeah. Of course, pleasure is all mine. And so today I'm pretty excited to talk about um, a different iteration, um, I guess part of your journey as an entrepreneur. Um, But where I'd like to start, as with all superheroes, is Prince. (laughs) So honestly, uh, to be more serious, I guess, when did you come to sort of understand the need for the work that you are doing right now with Satana? Oh, wow. Um, Firstly, thanks for the question. Um, I guess in many ways, the the story maps back to work that takes us back to Kenya. 
Um, so we were in client assignment in Kenya, um, doing work for our business Hispani at the time. And while we were in Kenya, we ran into a company there called 4G Capital that was um, doing working capital finance to informal traders within the context of the informal sector in Kibera and those areas out in Nairobi. Then my business partner and Dando and I obviously flew back after our client assignment in Kenya. A sneeze is coming along, so if I do sneeze, forgive me. <laughs> um, but anywho, um, and then Ndando walked into a Spazza store in Kailicha, no, Philippi Village, sorry, in Philippi Village in the Western Cape. Um, and he met the Spazza store owner and, the, and the, the guy was crying and he asked him, why are you crying? And the gentleman said, um, all I ever want to do is to feed myself, feed my family and feed my business. And as Ndando asked him a series of questions, he realized, number one, the gentleman um, needed 10,000 bucks, but at the core of it, he had a working capital finance problem. It wasn't that he was running necessarily a bad business. It's just that the nature of the existing financial infrastructure in the country um, didn't enable businesses like these to be able to access working capital finance. And when um, you said 10,000 10, bucks, sorry to interrupt, what currency are we talking about? Talking about RAND, not US dollar. <laughs> uh, Perfect. So, Clarifying. Um, at, at the core of it, um, the, the, the gentleman. The gentleman needed financing um, and because he was informal, unbanked um, and most likely a foreign national at the time, there was no way to be able to deliver financing to service this specific environment. And for us, that's when the idea hit us that there's a huge opportunity to look to deliver financial services specifically in the form of working capital finance to informal traders. No, oh, awesome. Thanks for sharing a bit about that. And, you know, as you were speaking, and this is probably not necessarily directly, maybe actually related to your work, but in general, why do you think there's such like, I guess, lack of information or I guess engagement with sort of the informal sector, informal economy um, in South Africa? I mean, it's a broadly African question, but it'd be good to know your thoughts or your insights from your work in SA. So I think um, there, there are two components to it. Um, more often than not, things you don't understand, you're scared of. Mm. Um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges that have affected, dare I say, corporate South Africa is the willingness to lean in um, into this environment as it relates to the ability to understand. Ask any executive today um, in the FMCG or the financial services space, and I challenge them with the most humblest amount of respect. They wouldn't be able to effectively articulate to you why is, does someone choose yam yam over black cat? Um, and it's it can't just be that it's a pricing component. It's the reality of the fact that for the vast majority of brands and businesses, there's still a big understanding gap as it relates to understanding what are the fundamental motivations that inform the purchasing patterns of their customers. The second component is that what I've seen at least within, and I used FMCG as an example now, but what I've seen within the financial services space is that there's been the conflation of the idea of distribution. Um, so if we build up massive amounts of distribution, it necessarily converts into uptake, um, whereas people don't necessarily consider stickiness. How many of our customers are we actually retaining versus how many of the customers are actually taking up our product? And what you find is an effective 
if effectively is a dissonance where people are so focused on building our distribution, but not fi finding out why are people buying our products, why are they staying, um, and what is why why is our product by orders of magnitude better than Liberty's funeral policy versus AFBOP's funeral policy, for argument's sake. And I think that's where the gap in understanding specifically exists. Um, and why it persists is more often than not because of how the market structure is set up. So distribution into the informal sector for most products and services is highly intermediated. Um, so within the FMCG space, it will be intermediated between your wholesalers, your midi wholesalers, all the way down to the buzzer store. Within the financial services space and insurance, it's intermediated all the way between brokers, agents, funeral parlors before it gets to the end consumer. And in that intermediation, you have significant amounts of information asymmetry. So the guys at the top actually are caring about P&L, whether or not sales are churning out. They're not really caring about why did Mamla Mini buy this product or service mm. as a consequence. And for us, that's where the opportunity for innovation and insight actually exists to deliver products and services that truly service this environment. Mm, awesome. And so it's, it's you no, know, that's, that's pretty cool. So that your answer, I guess, to sort of addressing or beginning to address this ginormous challenge is Satana. Um, can you talk a bit about how Satana is tackling this challenge? Cool. So I guess how Satana is um, solving the challenge in some, as it relates to um, financing working capital into the hands of informal traders in South Africa um, as a starting point and hopefully into the rest of the continent is we we came up with a model um, that instead of giving an entrepreneur cash, um, we could lend them stock. Um, and in fact, what our business model looked like for the most part, obviously we got backed by Alan Gray through the Empowerment Army Squared. And what we did in effect is that we partnered with wholesalers. Um, and those wholesalers gave us access to transactional data. Um, that transactional data, we ran it through our model and it would load a credit amount on the side of the wholesaler system, which then enables that um, transactional data of this particular, um, let's say, Zamazamas, Bazist or, or Dukkha, for those who are in East Africa that might see this, um, to be able to draw out stock as a consequence and then repay that amount after a 14-day cycle. And we give away ticket sizes of anywhere between 10 to 200,000 Rand. Um, and in effect, that money is typically repaid within a 14-day cycle. And we've had, I mean, a 99.5% repayment rate, um, which far outstrips very much what you'd see within the traditional banking space. But far more importantly, we've been able to prove that entrepreneurs being backed with the right factors of production and with, the innovate, with innovating the business model um, fundamentally changes the way in which they're able to scale and grow their businesses, but also to be able to be contributing members of society. And I think it's important that like when we think about development and change as relates to the continent, um, it has less to do with fancy technology and AI and chat GPT and all of this stuff. I think at its core to unlock true value as it relates to the informal sector of Africa, we need to fundamentally innovate our business models and not just our technology. No, that's that's actually a really a really cool point to make and we sort of this came up in our discussion the last time and it's it's one of those that I'm like it didn't actually occur to me because usually the talk is around you know this new technology and how to add that to your business or how to but it's not necessarily just the technology it's actually for us 
the the differentiator, what is likely, I guess, to have quite a bit impact is actually innovating the models and trying to figure out actually, given the market that we have, given the conditions, the systems that we operate in, what actually can we change to make it work better um, for the people? And I think that's fascinating that that's something you guys have unlocked um, and you're actually sort of working within to make a difference. That's that's pretty amazing. So well done to you guys. Um, so as with any journey, right, um, I imagine, um, or maybe it has um, been exactly too easy. Um, what have been some of the pain points in this journey so far um, and what keeps you and the team going and confident in your approach and your presence um, in the market? Uh, definitely not been easy. Um, let's 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 be straight up about <laughs> that. I think um, when you wake up in the morning and you tell a highly regulated environment and um, of capital and you tell investors that you want to put their money into the hands of the informal traders that don't speak their same, the same language as them, don't look like them for the most part. And if anything, um, by traditional credit scoring mechanisms are significantly high risk. Um, it's tough to attract capital into that sort of environment. Um, so I think for us, what became important, that was, or rather, let me say, one of the biggest pain points was articulating the narrative and the opportunity that exists in the space relative to the risk and the upside of what it looks like to um, be able to solve this problem if we do get it right. And I guess, in part, that's where um, catalytic capital and soft money comes in from the likes of, let's say, Alan Gray or E Squared in this specific instance, to enable you to test your initial assumptions. I remember when we put in our first amount of money into it, um, I'll be 100% honest, we didn't even put in a lot of money. We were testing out, we're like, 65,000 Rand, let's find a couple of guys, let's give them cash, let's see if we'll get it back. And we lost all of it. We only came back with 15,000 Rand, roughly, um, in the first iteration. And the key learning for us very quickly was, um, on the one side, never lend with cash, lend with stock. Um, give them the factors of production that are actually necessary to unlock value within the context of their businesses. Um, and then the second approach was to say, create an embedded finance model that creates dependencies within the value chain as relates to your ability to unlock um, the ability of the suppliers to provide stock to the traders. Um, and to do that through our innovative model on as, as it relates to how we score and determine credit allocation and manage that through an effective customer success process to be able to deliver and unlock value on a consistent basis. So for us, getting to that point was not easy. We start because I come from a market insights and a research background with our business is funny. We started this journey in 2020 with one of our other co-founders, Wabanda Shope. Um, and we started doing the research um, on the informal sector. We started going out, writing up reports, presenting to the IFC, speaking to different organizations about the opportunity that exists within that space. And it's not that they didn't recognize it. It's just that I don't think anyone wanted to test with risk capital. And it's up until we managed to get um, our current investors and capital providers to see the opportunity that we were then able to unlock real money um, and test it out and then grow it out aggressively at scale. Um, so it's been it's been it's been an exciting journey, but definitely one that hasn't been without challenge. And then to your last question is to 
I'm not not your last, but the the question you asked now, as it relates to what keeps us in the space, and I guess part of it for us is the reality that we recognise that informal traders and SMEs play a critical part of the African economy. Um, over 80% of jobs are created by SMEs, and most of those SMEs, at least within the African context, are informal. But beyond that, it's the imperative to innovate for a continent that has massive opportunity and to give individuals through the alternative forms of data that they generate a voice in the boardroom of capital um, and to align the business models in such a way that ultimately creates value for the capital providers and also for those SMEs. Those SMEs that we fund are not just numbers, they're human beings, they are fathers, they're mothers, they've got children, they are the hopes and aspirations of um, many communities. And for us, it's beyond just building the next unicorn. It's purposefully knitted into the fact that every single entrepreneur that we end up backing with the right amount of capital and then returning it is a vote of confidence into Africa's informal sector and the potential of entrepreneurs to grow their businesses. I mean, come on, somebody is all I can say to that response. Um, but no, I think you... You make a really important point, right? Is this idea is, is the vote of confidence on the continent for the continent? And I was thinking about our last conversation um, and this idea of people putting in the work, but not just doing things for doing sake, but finding problems, actual problems in their communities around them and trying to come up with solutions to them. And I'm just wondering, given the work that you have done so far, um, or you are doing so far with Satana, um, do you have any ideas yet of what kind of ecosystem is needed um, for the people you seek to serve and how other people can start to think about playing in this space, making an impact in this space? No, 100%. So I think um, for the most for the for the most part, there's an adage that's formed part of the entrepreneurial lingua franca of the South African tech or business ecosystem, which is entrepreneurs are overtrained and underfunded. Um, I think for the most part, um, a lot of the opportunity that does exist is in thinking about innovative ways and in delivering funding. So not to say that training isn't require, required for some of these entrepreneurs, but you'll find some of the most astute entrepreneurs um, who run their businesses on very like amazing principles, but they're just not formal. Um, and being able to um, enable those entrepreneurs to become more formalized in, in the approach um, to how they run their businesses to be able to enable them to access different forms of capital, I think, would be significantly value adding to that space. But I also think part of the provocation is less about um, not just the ec ecosystem, but what needs to happen in the hearts and minds of individuals, um, not just the holders of capital alone, but as business and as individuals of society, I think if we're going to move Africa's entrepreneurial ecosystem forward, um, the, the what you call it, the incentive structures that inform participation as it relates to our impact into that space needs to change. Now, obviously, because we live, broadly speaking, within a free market environment, um, return will always be the thing that the capital investor um, looks for. 
everyone is looking to make a return. But I think beyond looking for a a a a return on capital, we also need to be provoking ourselves to say, what does the social return look like? Um, and how does that how do we measure that social return with respect to the ecosystem this entrepreneur has? I mean, if we look at the impact of not having access to electricity, um, a lot of these entrepreneurs, for example, that we support, and I'm speaking now from an ecosystem perspective, require a solar lights because, as you know, we're going through load shedding um, within the context of South Africa. That has a significant impact on these individuals who um, who often run their stores from six o'clock in the morning all the way to about nine to eleven p.m. in the evening, um, and the absence of electricity significantly puts them at risk um, because of certain criminal elements that exist within the ecosystems within which they operate. The second component, as well as I think, um, there needs to be, and I don't want to sound like the 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 what you call it the typical African or international investor who says we need clarity on legislation and policy. Um, but I think that we definitely do need legislation and policy that um, disproportionately incentivizes corporates to be investing within the context of this space and not to make it a tick box exercise because for the most part, you'll find that a number of businesses are there to tick boxes. Um, did we meet our BE scorecard? Did we do this? Did we do that? And that's great. Now, but I think when things are legislated alone, but not legislated with the view of really driving development, it becomes problematic. Um, and part of those broader ecosystem challenges are the things that equally affect, I would say, the environment and to start thinking about the right sort of policies that can be put in place to support these, this environment, I think, um, would, would, be, would be of value. No, that's that's very helpful. And thank you for sharing that, because my next question was sort of more along the lines, or I guess the space that I work in, um, and is this idea of trying to help sort of African governments come up with um, policies that are friendly, policies that actually enable the kinds of things that we claim um, we actually want to create. Um, and maybe that's a conversation we'll probably um, explore a bit more later on, because it was, it was this question of what, what role, right, um, do governments or government policies should have played in enabling um, the kinds of environment that um, the people you work with need, the kinds of environment that organizations like Satana um, can thrive in. What does that look like, even in terms of some of these incentives? And I think sometimes the challenge that we often hear is, and it's also this, right, sometimes lack of creativity, if I can put it that, or innovation around the way we think about the processes, not just the things to do. Um, because you bring up yeah. these things and it's like, well, then it's going to be a race to the bottom for taxes. And But it, it doesn't, nobody said it has to be that. Um, it could mm -hmm. be a part of the package, but we need to think about these things a bit more. So I was just curious, to hear your thoughts on some of the ways, if they've come up for you yet, that um, governments can be a bit more intentional around this sort of uh, trying to incentivize corporates to go into this space, because this is this is where we need them. This is this is one of the ways or places where we need governments to work together or better with the private sector um, to change the status quo. So I mean, um, in defense of the private sector, it doesn't. Oh, <laughs> so, it <doesn't laughs> so it doesn't seem as though I've been coming against my people. Um, for, for all intents and purposes, the question is this, and I think this is the provocation at its core. 
The provocation is at its core is, are we doing enough? Not if we're doing something at all. And that's a conversation that each and every person needs to deeply reflect upon and sit with. Are we doing enough? Not if we're doing anything at all. And I guess for the most part, from a policy perspective, government has put through policy that mandates businesses to transform their supply chains through enterprise supply development programs. Different of, some of these programs have had varying amounts of success. And mine is not to criticize or um, significantly say all of them have been stellar. Some of them have been great. Others haven't been great. But I want to hop on the point that you raised on how do we innovate around legislation in a way that draws in the incentive structures of not just the big corporate, but also the small guy who doesn't have a voice in that room. And I think it becomes the, the, the way in which we do that is we have a framework um, that we tend to um, give to our corporate clients that we do strategy work for in our consulting business. And we call it AUR, which is to assimilate, understand and respond. More often than not, what we find is that policy <clears throat> interventions as it relates to this environment more often than not have largely been reactive and not responsive. Um, and as a consequence, what happens is that we don't find ourselves in a situation where we're listening to understand, we're listening to respond. And everyone is saying, oh, I've done this or I'm doing this. But the question is, are you measuring the impact of what you're doing? And at scale, how does this unlock value, not just for the entrepreneur, but also for your business? And is it is it part of your core KPIs as a business to do this? And insofar as we don't link, and I think we need to be very hard and fast in this, and because this is just how corporate is, um, we need to make sure that the agendas, whether it's relating to empowering more small businesses, fundamentally speaks to the value creating process within corporate institutions. Otherwise, whenever we legislate, it will be a tick box exercise. So if we don't link legislation to the value creating mechanisms within those um, businesses, um, then it's not really going to work. But the second component is this, is that we can legislate us, we can't legislate ourselves out of um, our deep seated beliefs. And hence, if there's going to be change, something needs to fundamentally happen in the hearts and minds of individuals to see this change as an imperative. And I've been saying this in a number of the presentations that I've, I've had the privilege to deliver over the last few months. And that is that the present that we live in is not inherited from our ancestors, it's borrowed from our children. And what that should do in the minds of people is that it should force them to think generationally and not about the maintenance of the status quo. But what are the network effects of the decisions that we make as it relates to us as a business in terms of how we transform, as it relates to the responsibility we have as to unlocking value for these SMEs, and how we make this a core part of our process as it relates to value creation. That, I think, is the big shift that needs to happen in the hearts and minds of people, is to realize that there's a generation coming after them. And if we can get that switch to drop, I think that's when change really begins to happen. Hmm.
No, I couldn't agree with you more. And Prince, I know we've come to uh, time over here. I don't want to keep you longer, but before we go, it would be good to know, what does the road ahead for Satana um, look like in the next two to five years? What does that look like for you guys? What are you hoping to achieve? What are you hoping to do? Um, and how can others plug in? Um, so I guess for us at Satana, where our headspace is, is over the next five years, I'd like to look at it within a five-year cycle. Over the next five years, we'll want to become one of the leading, um, if not the biggest player within township finance in South Africa, and hopefully would be able to expand outside of of the con out of outside of South Africa in this specific context, we are pursuing aggressive growth in terms of how we're looking at it, but also responsible and sustainable growth. Um, I think um, uh, Strive Masiwa speaks about the importance of a business having the right people, product, and processes, and I think for us that's a critical framework that we've taken in the context of how we've designed and looked to scale our business. We're moving not just into the informal space. We're looking at gig economy workers. We're also having a, a number of interesting products that are going to be focusing specifically on SMEs and asset financing. Um, so that's SMEs within the formal space. But we're taking an embedded first approach. Um, and it's super exciting. I think we've been blessed to have an amazing team and amazing backers. Um, and if anyone still wants to participate in our round, feel free to reach out. Um, we're still keen and taking on capital. Um, and yeah. If you're part of, if you're excited to be part of the growth story of a business that will be making an impact in the lives of informal traders and SMEs on the continent, um, I'd like to believe Satan is the right jockey to back. And with that, there's not much else I can add. Prince, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day um, to speak with me today. It's always a pleasure learning from you, um, sharing ideas and um, getting the brain going. Um, and I think it's, it's always fascinating, um, especially when we sort of get to the core of some of these issues because I feel I'm not too sure what the issue is sometimes where that is just the speed to come up with things where sometimes we actually just need to sit with to think about um, and mm -hmm. actually figure out you know what it takes to have that change of heart change of mind um, and you know it's, it's this idea of it's not just having um, a heart for the quote-unquote poor but it's also having a mind for the poor <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it, it takes a little bit more than um, sympathy so thank you so much thank you um, and the team for the work that you're doing we're excited to see um, what comes out of this and yeah how can people find you or reach you um, feel free to reach me at prince at satanacapital.com that's my email address and um, definitely keen and yeah I think people just need to lean in. Lean Indeed in. they do. Prince, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you, Marie. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did putting it together. I love, love learning new things. Hey, if you enjoyed this chat, you definitely enjoy others that came before it. Check out previous episodes on whichever platform you're tuned into now or visit our website www.thebrentersfoundation.org for other episodes. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if I could make one last ask of you, please do share this with others. Again, you're listening to Marie Noel on the Brentus Foundation podcast and it's been a pleasure sharing this time with you. Until next week, stay well.